This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and we are back after a bit of technical difficulties last week over the holiday week, but we're back and we're back in force this week. I'm here once more with Stephen Gillespie. Stephen, how are you doing this fine afternoon? Nick, I'm awesome. Uh, getting to work with you for an- another Deep Dive show. It's It's been fun just getting to continue to tag along with you, uh, being a little bit more of a of a recurring guest i'm ha- I'm having fun man i'm excited how's everything going for you though i'm i'm doing well uh you know sort of still adjusting to being back home after the after the long weekend but you know yeah it's a busy time of year a lot of basketball going on you know obviously tonight is a big night for the sacramento kings they may well be able to secure the next round in the in-season tournament so that'll definitely be what my evening is but for now we have a article to talk about of yours you wrote for today so yesterday by the time people are listening to this on kevin mccullough jr who is someone who has been a no ceilings favorite for a while is someone who i actually wrote about last year for one of my one of the sections on one of my editor's notes pieces but mccullough is someone who very interestingly you know has gotten some hype towards the end of the last two draft cycles more last year than the year before but decided to return for another year. And I don't know, in the early going, it seems like it's been a good decision for him. But I'm curious, I want to throw to you, what made you decide to write about Kevin McCullough for this piece? Well, yeah, just that, um, you know, it's the early part of the cycle. There are people who I had expectations on that haven't met them. People who I didn't have much expectations for who are now like on my radar full force. And I feel like we oftentimes forget about players like a Kevin McCullough Jr., who has been like the consummate draft prospect for the past couple of seasons, as you mentioned, has had waves of momentum, but hasn't really gotten him to the point where he feels comfortable declaring and staying in the draft. So, you know, with this being like the last year that he's able to do that, I feel like he's kind of answered the call a little bit. He reminds me a little bit of a player that I wrote about last year who kind of similar trajectory. And it worked out well for him in his uh, final season for his school. I'm sure we'll talk about him in a little bit. But, you know, just he is the type of prospect that I feel like we kind of as a basketball community can tend to take for granted 
a little bit, especially whenever he's performing to the level which he's doing this year. So why don't we actually get into talking about that other player? Because, you know, I just mentioned the Kings in-season tournament, and the team they're playing tonight is the team that drafted the other player that we're going to talk about, Trace Jackson Davis, who is someone who, heading into last year, I thought of as, okay, you know, very productive, undersized college center. I'll have him go in my second round somewhere. You know, he's definitely a draftable player. Not sure I would take him with a first-round pick, but I expect him to have some length of an NBA career. And within a couple months of last year, I had moved Trace Jackson Davis into my first round. And the main reason for that is because he took, as you mentioned in the article, a massive leap forward in terms of his playmaking. And basically it turned him from, you know, your sort of a run-of-the-mill, productive, you know, upperclassman, college big man to, okay, this is someone who actually changes the dynamic of an offense much more than sort of your plug-and-play type of center. And, you know, he ends up going to a team that was pretty much a perfect fit for him in the Golden State Warriors. And, you know, he's already, I mean, he's already started for them. He's already, you know, played, well, no, he hasn't started for them, excuse me, um, but he's, you know, played a role in their rotation. I was confusing uh, preseason with whatever. Anyway, the point being, you know, he's played a role for the Golden State Warriors already as the 57th pick in the draft, which a lot of 57th picks in the draft don't even make it to the NBA, right? And it's the kind of thing with Trace Jackson Davis where people sort of, you know, got used to him being a part of the college landscape and they figured, okay, yeah, I guess he'll maybe get a cup of coffee somewhere and had ignored the fact that he'd gone from, you know, he was never a bad passer, but he went from, you know, decent passer for his position to someone who can actually change the, you know, dynamic on the floor with his kind of, with his passing as a big man. And, you know, with McCuller, as you mentioned, it's a similar sort of deal where he'd sort of established his place in people's minds. People had sort of decided, okay, this is the kind of player that he is. And, you know, instead what we're starting to see this year is, you know, there's, there's more to his game than just sort of being a defensive piece who you hope can turn the shooting around. Exactly. And, you know, Trace was a guy that had, you know, the, the one question that everybody had or the one sticking point with him was like, if he could only shoot the basketball. And, you know, Maxwell actually brought it up a little bit on our last episode is that sometimes we just we really love when a basketball player has a glaring deficiency and they come in and they hit the ground running on that one glaring deficiency that everybody wants to see it do. Right. And when players don't, you just kind of push them to the back. It's like, all right, I've, I've seen enough. I know everything I need to know about you. Maybe, you know, maybe you're a second round draft pick. Maybe you're a person that gets on a two way contract and the team looks really smart for investing in you. But I've seen enough. I don't need to really do anything else. But for a player like Trace, it's not that, I mean, he obviously didn't shoot, right? So it's not like he made strides in that area. But what he did do was that, one, he got better at the things that he was already good at, right? So proving a, a strength also goes a little bit uh, unheralded. And then also, although he didn't add to his offensive game shooting the ball, he improved as a playmaker. And in the NBA, if you're going to be a big man in the post, you got to be able to sh- at least string a play along. Now Trace has shown that he can have an offense flow through him, and that's big for for a defensive-minded, athletic, rebounding big man, right? Like you can do something unique on offense that gives your team a wrinkle. Kevin McCuller, kind of the same thing, where he's been a, a subpar three-point shooter, and it's not that he's improved drastically in that area this year, although he has made a little bit of improvement. 
but he has added to his game as a playmaker. And especially for a more perimeter-oriented player, you have to be able to be trusted to make smart decisions along the outside. Even when you're, even if you're an off-ball player, right, who's primarily going to be a cutter or a screen setter, or, you know, someone who crashes the board, you have to be able to to string a play along. And I think Kevin has already shown that he can do a little bit more than just be, uh, you know, a, a connector player. He can actually do some pretty unique things with the ball on his hands, and he's showing that a lot this year. Yeah, I mean, you and I have talked about this before. You used Anthony Morrow. I used Troy Daniels as my sort of go-to example of, you know, even with three-point shooting, which, you know, has been one of, if not the most valuable skills in the league for a while now, if that's all you do, that's not good enough because defenses will force you off the three-point line. They'll, you know, they'll force you to either move the ball or attack the basket or at least attack the mid-range in some kind of way. They won't let you just, you know, camp out on the wings. And it's interesting with, McCuller because you know his shot has been one of the questions you know can he be good enough as a shooter to get his defense on the floor but if you add in you know the playmaking element that he's started to show this year more than he had in previous years all of a sudden the question is not just okay you know can we do anything with him when you know he doesn't have the ball in his hands beyond the three-point line especially given that his shooting was a bit of a question the question you know the idea now is okay you know he's someone who when he gets the ball in his hands, he'll make a good decision with it, right? You know, sometimes that will be pulling up himself. Sometimes that will be, you know, pump fake and drive a little bit. But for the most part, it's the idea that, okay, he's someone who keeps the offense going, right? He's not someone who, if the ball hits in his hands, the ball better be going up because if he's not shooting it, he can't do anything to contribute positively to the roster. Yeah, and what? how do, how do you functionalize this type of thing, Nick, right? And I think that's yeah. where people might get their head kind of wrapped around, okay, you still having problem shooting, like what value can you bring into an offense? Well, he's got good size. He measures anywhere between, you know, six, 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 seven. In in the NBA today with his strength and athleticism, he could probably give you minutes at the four a little bit, right? Probably the two through four is comfortably where he can play. Let's say that he's a front court player. So he's away from the ball. He can set screens. He can be involved in that stuff. He can slash. He can come off of actions grab the ball around, you know, let's say the elbows or wing in motion with somebody in someone in position to screen his man coming off of movement. From there, he can attack the basket, which he's already shown that he's very good at. He has the strength and athleticism to finish in contact. But now you trust him, Nick, to be able to make plays out of that motion, which you keep you keep the offense moving along so the defense can't settle and stagnate and get into a position to recover. They're still in a recovery motion now because McCuller can make plays on the move now and hit these open shooters if the defense decides that they do want to come over. If not, McCuller has shown the strength and the ability and the touch around the basket to be able to finish. So he gives you a little bit more um, dynamic ability than I think sometimes people would otherwise think. And creative offenses in the NBA could be able to utilize that within a rotation, even if it's a second unit or something like that. You know, he, he keeps the offense moving now because he can make plays out of motion. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It's something where, honestly, you know, this specific sort of role has really only been sort of a major part of rotations for the last few years in the NBA with, you know, I think in particular of the emergence of Bruce Brown, right? Where, you know, particularly for Brooklyn, there would be a lot of plays when, you know, 6'4", 6'5", Bruce Brown was 
effectively the center offensively. You know, he was the role man in pick and rolls. And, you know, the idea being, okay, you know, he's someone who maybe shooting isn't his greatest skill, but he's a great off-ball mover, and he's willing to do the wordy, the dirty work of sort of filling whatever hole needs to be filled, in a sense, of like, okay, you know, you need someone to screen and roll? Great, I can do that. You know, I'll be bumping a guy who's six inches taller than me, but, you know, I'm athletic and I'm a good rim runner, and, you know, if teams won't respect the threat of my shot enough, I have to figure out something else to do, right? And it went from... Yep you know, Bruce Brown sort of being on the fringes of rotations to being a $20 million a year man for the Pacers now, right? It's the kind of thing where just over the last couple of years, we've sort of seen this rapid evolution of, okay, well, if the offense is always going to be, you know, four out, one in, right? If you're a non-shooting smaller player, or not even non-shooting as much as, you know, a smaller player who is willing to sort of do the dirty work and who is good enough as sort of a, you know, slasher, whether on ball or off ball, there are a lot of different things you can do with them, especially, and I think this is the key point, especially if they add enough on the defensive end to make that sort of reshuffling of the roster worth it. And certainly we'll get into that more later, but certainly on the defensive end, the color has enough to, you know, make it worth it to try and figure out the offensive stuff. Absolutely. You know, and one of the things that I wrote about earlier in in the season coming into this year is I, I do my, you know, what looking for what works piece. And right. I, I talk about different player types and utility forwards are, are like the second highest hit rate among all drafted players. And it's because, you know, they have to come in with the defensive acumen that we'll get into in a little bit here with Kevin. But you also have to have something that you can do on the offensive end that doesn't make you a liability. And that's exactly what we've been discussing with McCuller, Nick, is that you, you can, you've been able to trust him in transition. You've been able to trust him off ball, making smart cuts and reads to get to the rim and finishing traffic with strength and athleticism. Now he's continuing to showcase and improve uh, court awareness and savvy to where you trust him to put the ball on the ground and make smart reads. And that's as, that's a typically a safe player that sees a long career in the NBA. And once you get past pick like 14, 15, 16, once you start getting into the latter portions of the first round, you finding these multi-year NBA talents is a really good thing for you to do when you're in the back half of the first round. So let's get into some of the specifics of your dive section and going into the offense in particular. I'm glad that you brought up the slashing, first of all, because, I mean, first of all, this is a topic that I tend to, you know, nerd out way too much about, but his his ability as a cutter, I think, is really huge for sort of seeing him fit into the dynamic of an offense. And, you know, that's something that he's always been good at, right? I mean, you mentioned in the piece, you know, he's been in the 65th percentile plus for, you know, pretty much every year of his college career in the 91st percentile now. And, you know, the one hand is like, yeah, okay, the sample size is small, right? But the other hand is, look, this is something he's always been good at, right? And, you know, it's the kind of thing where, when you look at development and talk about how it isn't linear, you know, sometimes it's the kind of thing where you go from not good at something to good enough, right? To average, to passable. And sometimes it's just going from good to great that makes a big difference of, you know, okay, rather than just sort of being, you know, one of the many good wing cutters, right? Now, taking that step up to being a great cutter, you know, especially for someone who, presumably will not, you know, have the ball in his hands that much at the NBA level, right? I don't think, you know, teams are going to ask him to run the offense for significant periods of time, even though, as we'll get into, his playmaking has certainly taken a leap forward. You know, 
his ability to be effective off the ball. It's not just can he be in the mid to maybe even high 30s three-point percentage-wise, right? It's like, okay, what can he do that contributes positively to an offense when the ball is not in his hands? And the answer, you know, throughout his career has mostly been cutting, but him taking that from being a good thing for him to do when he doesn't have the ball in his hands to being one of the best players in college basketball at taking advantage of off-ball space, that's a huge development in terms of, you know, the sort of viability of him working his way into an NBA rotation sooner rather than later. Absolutely. I mean, and I like to say this a lot, Nick, but effort is a skill. Mm-hmm. So knowing that, you know, you can watch film and see that, but how do you quantify it? How do you have a conversation about it? Nick, if I'm talking to you about a player and I just say, this guy has effort, right? Or if I'm making a pitch, more importantly, in an NBA front office and I'm talking to the decision maker, you know, the, the executive of basketball operations, whoever I need to communicate with, like, hey, this is a player that I want to draft. You know, some of these guys want to hear a, a two-sentence sales pitch. Some some people want to, you know, hear a player comparison, right? So if I'm selling Kevin McCuller as a player, I say, well, he plays hard. Well, what do you mean? Well, He's in the 91st percentile in cutting. That, to me, quantifies and signifies effort. Now, when you turn on the film, we can point and talk a little bit. And I have one play that I that I, that I put in this piece where Kansas is facing Tennessee, and you and I both love Josiah Jordan James out of Tennessee. Yes. Like he he is uh, an unheralded prospect in his own right. Uh, has a lot of similarities actually to Kevin McCuller, and he's a great defender. So. Kevin McCuller in this play, he's guarding by Josiah Jordan James, a player that you and I, Nick, we both think so highly of. He really fools Josiah and the rest of the Tennessee defense in this play. And it's super subtle, super, like, if, if you blink, you miss it, right? But the way that he gets into this play, Kansas runs a great motion where uh, not everybody's in line. Eventually, the, the, the big men come up to, to the high post into a horn set. But while that's happening, the wing players are running, are rubbing off of each other. Think of like a drag route and for you football fans out there. So these two are running drag routes off of each other. And as that's happening, the big men are coming from the low blocks to the high block. And then essentially you're in, you're in a, uh, a horn set with a one up top four across the, 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 the elbows, right? So as that's happening, Kevin McCuller plants his off foot and makes a perfect 45 angle to the basket. Now, two really good passes happen here where Dewan Harris gets the ball over to K.J. Adams, a player who a lot of us at No Ceilings like as well. He hits a perfectly placed bounce pass to a sprinting his tail off Kevin McCuller to the basket. He was able to finish in traffic using a reverse layup, using the rim to shield the ball away from the defender and with a high percentage finish. So that's a lot to talk about. But that play is like a perfect encapsulation of what Kevin McCuller brings to your offense just as a slasher. And he has gone from being really good at this skill, Nick, as you mentioned. He has taken a strength and now he's perfected it, right? Now he is an expert at this part of his game. And if effort's a skill and a slashing is an indicator, you you know that Kevin McCuller is going to bring the effort every night. And not everybody in the NBA wants to play hard, Nick, like we see it all the time. You want to get on the floor if you're not a, a, a top three pick, like run your tail off and you know that Kevin McCuller is going to do that. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you brought it up. It's interesting because it's the kind of play that, you know, as you mentioned, is 
you know, starting with 21 seconds left on the clock. It's the kind of play where, you know, if you catch a defense slipping, you can, you know, you can create this kind of play pretty quickly. I mean, we see it with a lot of, you know, modern NBA offenses where, you know, they'll run very similar plays or even the same play over and over again and just try and catch a defense slipping on a variation. It's the kind of thing where, you know, I, I see this mostly with the Kings just because, you know, they're the team that I watch the most, right? But, you know, watching Demonis Sabonis in the high post with basically, it's just an idea of, okay, you know, we're going to run whatever two-man game fits here, right? Like whoever whoever catches their defender, you know, napping the fastest, just make the right cut. Demonis will see you and he'll get the ball to you. It's the kind of thing where, okay, you know, you obviously need, as you mentioned, you need the good passes to set up the play, right? But yeah. the entire the entire play is basically just created by McCullough, you know, charging hard at the rim and everybody else noticing that, right? And it's the kind of thing where even if you're, you know, far from the main offensive option on your team, which I think I think we would agree that even in the best case scenario, Kevin McCullough is probably not going to be like a 25 point a game scorer at the NBA, right? It's the kind sure. of thing where, okay, you know, if you're parked alone in the corner and the defense is, you know, sagging off you because they just expect you to be, you're just spacing the floor, right? You're just sitting there spotting up, you know, maybe the ball swings to you, maybe it doesn't. But, you know, if that's the kind of thing where the defender says, okay, you know, he's just spotting up, you know, on the wing, whatever, I'm going to, you know, look at the ball handler, see if I can, you know, jump a passing lane, right? It's the kind of thing where, you know, I've said many, many times before, and I will many, many times again, right? Like, you know, if in the college game, anything that's a matter of feet in the NBA will be a matter of inches. In the college game, anything yeah. that's, you know, a second will be a half second in the NBA. And if you hesitate, then, you know, that space closes awfully quick. But if you're always on, if you're always locked in and you can catch your defender slipping, you know, that half second is something that NBA teams can take advantage of even at a higher level than one of the best college teams in the country in Kansas. Yeah, I'll wholeheartedly agree. And just, again, he's taking something that he's been good at for a long time. And now just because he has had the more reps, which, you know, isn't guaranteed when you make the leap into the NBA, right? Like even yeah. in the G League, it's not guaranteed, but he is continuing to, he's returned. Uh, he's done it at, at A&M. He's done it in a, I would say, a more a prestigious uh, university now for multiple years. And he has improved each and every place that he's been at from the first time that he had been. You know what I mean? Like from the first season that he's been at one of these universities, he's continued to build. And when he came to Kansas, he had already had a great foundation and has just polished it up to the point to where, in my in my opinion, Nick, he's undoubtedly a pro. I mean, I certainly would agree with that uh, assessment. I mean, yeah, I would have seen him as a pro last year. But, you know, again, it's the kind of thing where, you know, the more refinement, the easier it is to see his path to the NBA. And speaking of those refinements, you know, we talked about it earlier with Trace Jackson Davis, but the biggest change that McCullers made this year over last year is how much he's grown as a passer. And that's the kind of thing where, again, you know, if you're someone like McCuller who, you know, will have we'll see where it ends up, right? We'll see where he ends up in the draft. We'll see what team he ends up on. But it's the kind of thing where, you know, he'll have a shot somewhere. And then the question is just, how does he earn his way into the rotation, right? How does he establish himself as someone who you can't, you know, keep in the G League or who you can't, you know, keep DNP CDing on the end of the bench, right? Like, how do you earn consistent rotation minutes? And for him, being someone, you know, with his off-ball cutting skills that he has, right? It's the kind of thing of, okay, 
But when you do have the ball in your hands, what can you do, right? And this season, there's a lot more reason for hope of, yeah, he'll be very effective at that rather than, you know, okay, he'll keep the ball moving, but, you know, he won't make any... There's sort of the difference between making the easy pass and making the kind of pass that turns nothing into something, right? And as you mentioned in the piece, you know, just in the early going this year, we've seen a lot more of McCuller passing guys open rather than McCuller passing to the open guy. Yeah, and we, we've seen that in a variety of different ways, right? You know, and I open, I open soft with the passing. I don't go right for the home run hit because, you know, not every pass that you're going to have available to you is going to be Tyrese Halliburton or, you know, anybody. <laughs> or anybody like that. Yeah, I mean, y'all, y'all still got an all-star, but yeah, I mean, Tyrese Halliburton, I mean, we got, we got to admit, right? Like Tyrese is, it is immaculate this year. It's like Steve Nash on the, on those seven second or less Suns teams. He looks, he looks phenomenal. Oh, I will but, um, admit it. It's always a joy to watch Tyrese Halliburton play. It's just, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a little, there's a little tinge of sadness that comes with him no longer doing that for the Kings, but man, I will always root for him and he makes it very easy <laughs> to root for him with the way he plays. Yeah. I mean, he's got such infectious energy too. It's, he's a, uh, he seems like truly a gentleman in, in the NBA where not everybody, everybody seems to be embracing the Charles Barkley mantra of, of yesterday that was like, I'm not, I've, I've never said I was a role model type, type personality. It's good to see guys like Tyrese, you know, winning and doing well with a, a, a good personality. But Kevin McCuller here, um, I open with this, uh, seemingly simple pass is how I describe it to where he sees Hunter Dickinson in the post, Hunter Dickinson. Uh, despite how we may feel about his pro prospects, is a phenomenal college big man. Yes. Um, and what we see Kevin McCuller do to to get him open on a, on several occasions already this year is one he throws the ball to where only his guy can get it right. And I think sometimes as fans we see something as seemingly simple as an entry, like as an entry pass to a big man, whether it be a bounce pass or a, or a high pass to where only he can get it. And we just automatically feel like, well, yeah, that's what it's supposed to look like. But Nick, how many times as a basketball fan have you seen that pass go awry? Many, many. And it's the kind of thing where it's a very simple skill and, you know, in theory, right? But there are so many players who, you know, certainly there are so many big men who desperately need people who can throw good entry passes that don't have them, you know, <laughs> at Joel Embiid, right? <laughs> you know, just yeah, so many years Exactly. Court, right? Yeah, well, Victor Wimanyama without Trey Jones is one of the most obvious examples of that ever. It's like, how hard can it be to throw it to where only Victor can get it, given that there are so many places that only Victor can get to? And yet, right? And it's the kind of thing seemingly where... Seemingly simple. Yeah, seemingly simple. But if there aren't as many people who can do that as people assume there are, right? The guys who can actually make that post-entry pass, like, I'm willing to bet that wherever Kevin McCuller ends up, you know, if they have a center who uses up any sort of possessions at all, you know, isn't just a pure, you know, rim running, put back, uh, transition kind of big man, they'll be very happy to, you know, have the entry pass actually hit them in the hands rather than, you know, hit them in the knee and they have to sort of reach down for it or, you know, be way off to the side and it's, you know, flies into the 15th row. You see that a lot more often than you would think you would. But the flip side of that, of course, is, even if it doesn't look sexy on tape, if you can do it consistently, that puts you in a much higher tier of passers in the NBA than people might assume without watching. But it's more difficult than people think it is. And there are certainly fewer people who can do it than people would assume. 
Exactly. And I don't want people just to hear the audio and think like, okay, like you're throwing him a, a, you know, a pass to his chest or his hands. Like the pass that we're describing, not only is it an entry pass, but it's an entry pass to where Hunter Dickinson catches it and puts it up in motion, like in one fluid motion. So yeah. there's no record scratch upon the receipt of the pass. It, it's to where only Hunter can get it and is placed in a beautiful spot to where he can catch it, get get his body in position to lay the ball in and successfully lay it in all in one fluid motion. It's a beautiful pass that, I, again, seemingly simple, but it gets messed up all the time. And then there's a couple more plays here where um, the, the only one I want to describe here on, on the show is that uh, it, it's against Tennessee and, uh, you know, freshman guard Jamari McDowell for Kansas brings the ball at the court, hits um, McCuller after they run off each other to where um, he's on the wing uh, to, uh, excuse me, to where, um, to where McCuller is on the, is on the wing. Uh, he and he and Hunter Dickinson are in a position to where they can run a two man action if they want. Kevin does a great job of keeping, keeping the ball alive, driving to where he pulls the defense away. He recognizes the gravity that obviously as he is a ball handler, he's going to attract attention. He recognizes the gravity that Hunter Dickinson is attracting down on like in the post, like close to the basket uses that to his advantage to where he uses gravity to create an opening for an off-ball shooter to which he converts, right? So it's a it's a great find. He looks his man open and is able to it is able to lead to easy points, right? And that's the type of play that McCuller is making with more regularity this season that we just haven't seen in prior years. And that's the type of play that NBA executives, scouts, I think are going to look at and say, okay, wow, like this is – this is something that is a new wrinkle to his game. We can trust him because he's going to bring all these other great skills. Now he's a more refined, well, well-developed offensive talent. I think passing his guy open, you hit the nail on the head with that one. That's really what it is. You know, it's just the concept of, you know, again, sort of what we were talking about earlier with the cutting, right? Just creating something out of nothing, right? You know, rather than just making the easy play, keeping the ball moving, you know, that's that's important in and of itself, right? But it's the kind of thing where, you know, there are, there are plenty more guys who can keep the ball moving, make smart decisions, but not, you know, create any openings for a team, right? It's the difference between, okay, I'll make the open easy pass, and some guys won't see that, you know, some guys won't look for it, but there's a big difference between just I'll keep everything flowing and, I'll actually create, you know, a good opportunity that maybe would have turned into a, you know, rushed sort of two seconds left on the clock mid-range jumper if I hadn't seen that opportunity, if I hadn't, you know, passed the guy open, if I hadn't hit that window before it closed. Yeah, and, and using your eyes to get the defense to bite, again, it seems like a, a real subtle thing, but it just, when we're talking about the, the subtleties of his cutting, when we're talking about the subtleties to his passing, it's almost kind of like talking about an actor, right? Like what makes a great actor uh, compared to just like a decent per like a decent actor? It's like they make you believe what they're doing, right? Like you you feel their presence, you feel their emotions, you feel what they're doing. And in basketball, you kind of have to be a good actor in a lot of ways, especially when using like body deception. And that just means that he's taking his craft seriously, right? Like you're again, we're talking about someone who is continuing to polish his game up to be a professional. And when you start getting into subtleties and start nerding out about stuff like that, to me, that's like the indication of a really good basketball player, not just someone who can run high, run fast, 
uh, can just stand still and shoot the ball. Like all those are like great skills that you can have and be successful in basketball. But when we're talking about body movement, we're talking about feel for the game, like these subtleties and intricacies and tangible aspects to their games. It's just something that screams professional. I'm glad you brought up the active thing. I'm going to go way too nerdy with this, but it's fine. We'll deal with it. We'll <laughs> we'll move on quickly. But I think it's almost the difference in a way between someone who's really good at reading the lines on the page and someone who's an improv actor, right? Someone who, yeah. you know, the camera's on, you're filming them, and they're in character and they're thinking of, okay, you know, this is the line written on the page, but how would my character think about that, right? Like, would this be something that they would really say? And if this is something they really say, you know, maybe the stage direction says, you know, earnestly, but they're a more sarcastic character and they think through, okay, how would, you know, if I were this person, how would I respond in the situation? And similarly, you know, with the McCuller stuff, it's like, okay, you know, can I get to, you know, if, if we're running a set, can I, you know, make the curl around this, you know, the screen in the corner, curl to the top of the, the key and, you know, hit a three pointer. Okay, great. You know, that's, it's very valuable to be able to follow the playbook and, you know, be where you're supposed to be. Right. But there's a difference between that and, okay, the play's broken down. There's 10 seconds left on the clock. I'm standing here in the corner. This is where I'm supposed to be at the end of the play, but the play's already fallen apart. Do I continue to stand here or do I say, hey, there's two guys on our big man who has the ball. If I cut now and he throws a lob up, no one's going to be guarding the backdoor cut. Easy basket, right? It's, you know, it's a similar sort of thing where, okay, it's one thing to be able to play in the context of that structure. It's another thing entirely to notice when that structure has broken down or even when it hasn't broken down, but you see a good opportunity to take advantage of it rather than just sort of say, well, I'm supposed to stand in the corner, so I'm going to stand in the corner. Absolutely. And we see one such play, if we can go back to what we're talking about, the slashing to where they're, they're in their game against Marquette and McCuller finds himself in the left, in the left corner, Cam Jones, who I wrote about very recently, big fan of his game, right? Is a, is the primary defender against Kevin McCuller sees him planted in the corner. Now the scout would be okay. Like I can, I can play off of him a little bit. Hunter Dickinson has the ball. He's attracting two players, but I recognize based on where he has the ball and where he's being shaded on defense that the curl to like, if he was to execute a, a good spin, like dribble spin to his left, there's a wide open lane. If I'm a help defender, that's the type of stuff that I would want to look at and see. Okay. I, I know that I have this guy over here who can't shoot. I recognize that the guy that has the ball is like a good rim pressure big man. And I recognize that he's a good, like he has a lot of good post moves. He could curl left. And if I time this right, I could either knock the ball out of his hands on the spin or I could be in position to contest that shot. Those, it looks like those are all the things that Cam Jones is, is contemplating. That's what I would be considering anyway. And so he, he gambles off a little bit. Now in Kevin McCuller, this is where the improvisation that you just spoke to Nick comes in. He recognizes, hey, my, my defender has his back to me, and he's giving me way too much space. Not only is he giving me way too much space, but I could cut baseline right now for a, a really nice play, and that's exactly what he does. He recognizes that his defender is playing off of him. He's scouting the scout effectively, right? Like, okay, this guy's doing what I would do if I was defending me. Now, how would I, how would I beat me? I would cut baseline right now, which he does. He gets the ball and flushes a two-handed jam. That's that improvisation as, the play doesn't even get to the point of breaking down. He just recognizes that he has an opening. 
again, perfecting a strength. And now he makes the defender foolish. Now, even though he can't shoot, quote unquote, can't shoot as good as other players, you still have to respect where he is away from the ball, because if you you nap against him, he's going to find an open. So the other side of being forced to respect McCullough off the ball is being forced to respect him when he's spacing the floor rather than just being a cutter. So let's now move on to talking about his shooting. And this is where things start to get interesting for me in the sense of he doesn't need to be a 40% three-point shooter. But he does need to be good enough that defenses respect him when he's, you know, spacing the floor. And there are, you know, you cite a number of numbers in here that I do want to get into in a moment. But it's very interesting to me. So he's shooting 32% on over four attempts per game from deep. And for me, the more important of those two numbers by far is the four attempts per game, right? It's the kind of thing where, you know, again, as long as he's, you know, Low 30s is not where you'd want, but given that he's, you know, above 30%, it's the kind of thing where it's going to be more important for him that defenses pay attention to him out there because it's the kind of thing where, you know, okay, defenses are, aren't just going to, you know, give him 10 feet of space, right? That limits his cutting options, that, you know, limits his driving options if the ball swings to him. It's the kind of thing where as long as defenses are paying attention to him to some degree, that's, you know, that's the baseline of what he needs. Now, would it improve his future chances if he became a 35, 36, 37% point shooter? Yes, of course it would, right? But, you know, as you mentioned in the piece, he's graded out in the 58th percentile on catch and shoots per synergy, right? And that's the kind of thing where solidly, solidly above average, even just barely above average is good enough given the rest of what he provides. And, you know, again, if he shot slightly better, that'd be great. You know, if he sped up his release a little bit, you know, talking before about the, you know, feet versus inches thing, right? Like the kind of shot that he might just barely get off in college might get blocked or altered at some degree at the NBA level. So, you know, there's certainly room for improvement, right? There's, you know, it's something that, there's key signs, especially given that he has improved somewhat, that it's something that he's continuing to work on. But for me, it's the kind of thing where, you know, this, if this is all we get from Kevin McCullough as a shooter, I think that's good enough given the rest of his offense and given his defense, which we haven't even gotten into talking about yet, right? But again, if he gets better, great. But if he stays where he is, as long as defenses have to pay attention to him, you know, it's the difference between, you know, if he were shooting 32% on like one and a half attempts per game, then I'd be worried because defenses wouldn't ever need to bother with him out there. And as long as they have to bother with him out there, then, you know, 32%, 58th percentile, that's that's fine. It'd be great if it improves, but where it is now is good enough. Yeah, and I think the key here is, is you know, I, when I write these pieces, I do try to say, okay, there's a lot of great things about this player. Here's some things that, that require improvement, right? Because mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I, I would, when I, when I, for my job, Nick, I appreciate when people tell me like, Hey, I've noticed this about you. Like, this is something that I think you need to get better at. Like, okay, great. Because if no one brings it to my attention or if I think I'm fine, I think I'm great. No matter what I do, like I can live with this deficiency, whatever. Like, and then I'm, then I'm done growing as a person. Right. But, and, and this has been the scout for Kevin for years. So I'm not going to sit here and pretend like, oh, okay, like he's just finding out this year that he needs to be a better shooter. Right. He's known this for a while. This 32% that he has is the best that he's done. 
in his college career. So he is making an improvement and he's done it on the most volume that he's ever done. Right. So there's something to take away from that. Now, if his shot looked beautiful, like all the way through, I would be a little bit discouraged. And I might just, I think that this might sound counterintuitive to say that because the shot doesn't look so pretty, like there's more reasons to be encouraged, right? Because I'm not going to sit here and pretend that every team, uh, shout out to the Washington Wizards, does a great job with rebuilding a, 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 a player's shot, right? Um, so oh, sometimes you can't. Like I, I forget who the player was. I think it was Sam Decker who posted a, a tweet about Grady Dick, who apparently his shot has has been tweaked and he's still hitting it. And he kind of like sarcastically tweeted like, oh, no, like, who, why would you mess with this guy's shot? You know, that that it was effective for Grady Dick. It, it's not always effective for everyone to reform their shot. But I think for a player like Kevin McCuller, it would be because it's almost looking like, and I even put this in the article, it looks like he's painting by numbers. Like he is very much so thinking his shot through as he's doing it. It's not to the point to where it's natural for him to just catch and shoot because of how how many motions are in the shot before it gets to the top. And now when it gets to the top and it's released, the touch looks decent, right? Like there's improvements to be made there too on the release point and how it's coming off his hand a little bit. But there is the fact that he is improving based on what he's already, based on the shot mechanics that he has, refine that, speed that up a little bit. You might could get him to improve. And then, like you said, Nick, you don't need him to be a 36, 37, 38% three point shooter. You need, you would like him to be somewhere between that 34 to 36% on decent volume. You, all you really want him to do is to be respectable because in the NBA, we see teams are far more daring to let bad shooters have a lot of space where in college, it seems like these coaches take it as an insult if or they, they take it as like you're kind of cheapening the game if you don't play airtight defense on a bad shooter, right? Like, it's one of the things that bothers me a little bit about the college game is like everybody gets defended like they're like a, they're a great three-point shooter, even the bad shooters. But in the NBA, like you said, like where feet come to inches, it's going to be kind of the reverse a little bit until Kevin McCuller proves that he can be like a at least a respectable three-point shooter, in which it looks like he is already taking steps to become that. Yeah, I mean, I've talked many, many a time, and I will continue to talk many, many a time again about my, you know, belief on free throw shooting and being a partial yeah. free throw truther, right? In the sense of, it's a useful indication of touch, and you know, in the case of McCuller, his free throw volume has been higher than his three point volume throughout college, and you know, margin is smaller this year than it's been before, but you know, he's taken more free throws in college than he has three pointers, and he's at. 73%, right? So it's the kind of thing where, okay, you know, he's not, you know, a knockdown guy from the line, but, you know, he's also not someone who you look at his free throw numbers, you look at his, you know, two point shooting, and it's like, okay, this is someone who lacks touch, right? It's not an issue of him lacking touch. And I think your point, Re, you know, being more concerned if the shot was prettier, I totally get where you're coming from. My only sort of pushback on that is just that I think the speed of the shot being one of the specific issues worries me a bit more than if it was the kind of thing of, okay, his shots are always long, so he's putting too much leg into it. So, you know, revamp the shot that way, right? The speed of getting the shot off and, you know, actually it's the kind of thing where, you know, again, the feet being inches in the NBA thing, if he can't get off the shot quickly enough at the NBA level, then 
you know, any sort of minor improvements in the shooting percentage won't matter anywhere near as much because, you know, basically every look is going to be contested. And, you know, you mentioned in the piece, he's not someone who has one of these dramatic gaps between guarded and unguarded catch and shoot percentages. So, you know, it's not like some guys get really bothered when you get up in their shot. McCullough's not quite to that degree, but again, it's the kind of thing where I'm much, you know, much happier about the four attempts, four plus attempts per game thing than the shooting 32% thing, but it's the kind of deal where, you know, if that percentage goes down significantly when you're getting more heavily contested, that's where I might start to get worried. Or even more to the point, if he starts getting bothered on a shot at the NBA level and starts taking fewer of them, then that's, that's I think, more of a concern. But, you know, again, I get where you're coming from. It's just the kind of thing of a slow release is a particular problem that I think doesn't translate as well as maybe some other problems with someone shot. Yeah, and I think that ultimately comes down to philosophy and, like, situation is going to be the big thing. Um, For sure. I definitely, I definitely see your side of it, right, to where it might be hard for someone to speed their shot up. I just, I guess I'm choosing to be a little bit more optimistic in the fact that, like, he's showing improvements. He's showing that the, that the touch is there at a certain point of the shot. And the fact that there's, like, a natural touch, even though that the shot is a little bit long and it take it takes a while to get up, I think that those, are, those might be areas, again, like, fit and situation is going to be uh, important to him just like it is anybody. Uh, I guess I'm just choosing to look at it a little bit more on the fact that, like, it's a getting better and there's room for it to get better based on the form and the way it looks right now. So we have spent 45 minutes saying mostly positive things about Kevin McCullers offense. And that's the weaker side of the ball for him, which, you know, on the one hand speaks very well to his potential NBA future, but also, yeah, we do have to break down the defense, which that has been the calling card for Kevin McCuller since the very beginning. It's been, okay, can he figure out enough on offense to where his excellent defense can get on the floor? And, you know, it's been the kind of thing where there are a lot of players who they pick up more offensive responsibility and the defense wanes because, you know, it's a human thing, right? You only have so much energy, you know, even these incredibly well-conditioned professional athletes, there's only so much energy that one person can have at any given time. And, you know, almost always, if you get a much bigger offensive load, your defense starts to fall off a bit. And for McCuller, that has not been the case through the early going. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a guy last year in his first season in a brand new system, playing with other talented players. He had over 300 credited defensive possessions. It was in the 70th percentile, which per synergy that grades out is very good. I would tend to agree with that. The film matches that. Um, He's probably better in my opinion, last year than this being in the 70 percentile when you watch the film. But 300 possessions, 70 percentile, all college basketball, you take that, right? This year, he's in the 94th percentile at the time of this article, and that's been his highest grade ever, which grades out as excellent, right? 94% is usually pretty good, no matter what you're doing, right? Yeah, um, that's, and, that's an A grade and, most places. Yeah, and I mean, if you're considering the level of competition that Kansas has already played in the early going, we mentioned Tennessee, we mentioned Marquette, uh, there, there's going to be even more opportunities against really good teams that he's uh, gone up against. He's doing it against a, a guy like Dalton Connect, who, uh, shout out to Maxwell, my co-host, he was really big on the Dalton Connect train coming into the year. 
Connect had his worst game, and this is a guy who's been in college basketball for a long time. First year in the SEC, obviously, but he's he's been a super mega offensive player in college basketball for the past couple of years. McCullough held Dalton to a season low at the time of this article, 13 points on 23.5% shooting, which has been his worst, obviously, throughout the season. And that's just because he sticks to his man like Lou. I mean, we could be super hyperbolic when we're describing the way that Kevin McCullough plays defense, but sometimes I don't think you can be hyperbolic enough when, when you're looking at the effort effort that he gives on the court. Like, screens slow him down because he's a human being, but the recovery that he possesses because of his strength and athleticism, it allows him to make up for any lost ground that he might get around the screen. We're talking about a guy, too, who has the capability because he's athletic, he's strong, he's a wing player. He can cover up, he can cover on guards and stick with them. We saw that on Cam Jones on a couple of the possessions that I have here in the article. And not only can he stay with these fast guards, but he still has the wherewithal, the core strength and the balance to be able to pop up vertically and send these shots back, right? So he, he can guard wings, he can guard forwards, he can guard guards. I'm not going to do the, the, the super hyperbolic thing and say he can guard one through five. I don't think that he'll be able to do that in the NBA, but I think comfortably guarding two, two through four. Um, would be not outside the realm of possibility. Maybe some ones, maybe, I guess, some fives, depending on how freaky some small ball lineups can be. But I would feel comfortable saying that he's a three-position defender who can do some fun things on offense. Like, that's that's a first-round pick to me, man. And you bring up the fun things on offense. I think this goes back to our earlier discussion with, you know, him being, you know, potential one-in in some lineups. The fact that he can guard two through four you know, pretty reliably and, you know, maybe in some small ball context, guard five, I would, I would be more willing to bet on him guarding ones than I would fives, but either way, I you agree. Know, either way, we're thinking of him as a two to four guy, right? A three position defender. It's the kind of deal where, okay, throw McCuller in this lineup context, right? And as long as you have a point guard and as long as you have a big man, Kevin McCuller just fills the gaps, right? It's like, okay, throw him on the best player defensively, have him take that guy out of the game. And on the offensive end, right, it's like, okay, you know, if we're running play with our big man in the post, you know, you can trust McCuller to make the entry pass. You can also trust McCuller to, you know, be where he needs to be as a, you know, kickout option for the big man, right? And alternatively, you know, on some plays, if you want to run, you know, if you have the right kind of lineup to run a sort of weird inverted pick and roll, right? Like, you know, if you have a good passing center, like say a Demonis Sabonis, not that you know I'm using it for any specific particular reason, right? But you know, sure. if you have that kind of a if you have that kind of a big man, right, it's the kind of situation where you can fit McCullough in, and he'll find a niche to fill on the offensive end and on the defensive end. You know, as long as it's not a Joel Embiid or a Trey Young, right? He's going to find a way to guard whoever that is that he's thrown onto, and. That's huge, just in terms of the very basics of to continue to develop, you know, you need to, you know, this is a stupid thing to say, but you know, to continue to develop, you need to get minutes on the floor. And to get minutes yeah. on the floor, you need to find, you know, an excuse for your coach to throw you in. And if you can find a way to make sense in a whole lot of different lineups, you know, some teams might run Kevin McCullough out as a two, right? Like, I think you know, fully healthy Cleveland, they probably run him out at the two more than they run him out at the four because they have, you know, Jared Allen and Evan Mobley, right? You know, the big men positions are kind of spoken for, right? You throw him on a smaller team like 
you know, they're much bigger this year, but last year's Oklahoma City Thunder, where friend of the program, Jalen Williams, is spending a lot of time at the four. Kevin McCullough's probably the four-man on that team. And it's just the kind of situation where it's a lot easier to see him earning a rotation spot when he can be different things to different teams rather than just, okay, you're a floor spacing too. You're like a, you know, off-ball shooting guard type who, you know, we're going to throw you out at the two because you're 6'4 and we don't trust you to guard point guards, right? It's a lot easier for someone like a McCuller to find a role than someone like the aforementioned 6'4 guard who, you know, if they're good enough at what they do and if they're on the right team, yeah, they'll earn minutes. But, you know, if it's a sort of, I don't even know, like a third quarter situation and you're looking at the end of the bench and it's like, okay, who's going to make this lineup work better? This guy who has a you know sort of jack of all trades kind of skill set on the offensive end and excellent defense or someone who's really only helpful in a couple of different ways and the other four players on the court have to compliment them for it to work. Yeah, he's he's just to me he's like a consummate professional basketball player and with with the work rate, with the attitude, with the leadership that he possesses on the court on top of these other great things that he's we've already discussed. I mean, you could talk you could talk young teams even like a young team could get him like a, a Houston Rockets or, you know, even a, a, a Detroit Pistons. And you're, you're talking about a guy who can come in, who's not going to command a lot of possessions offensively, but you know, he's going to play hard on that side and he's going to, he's going to feed the stars, right? I mean, he's played with uh, NBA players like Jalen Wilson, like Grady Dick. He's playing with a superstar college athlete right now on Hunter Dickinson. He's playing with other guys who have a real shot at becoming pros like a Marco Jackson, like, you know, KJ Adams, you know, Juwan Harris is like a really good college guard, might see some pro stints in his future. Like he's played with some really talented guys and he can, he's taken on a number of different types of roles. And because of the versatility that he brings you defensively, if you are a good defensive team, you got a guy like Kevin, like Kevin McCuller on your team. You're like, go guard maybe the third or fourth best offensive player on the other team. Like, they're not getting looks. <laughs> like, that yeah. that guy is getting shut down. And then conversely, if you're drafting him to a team like, say, Houston, who does have a number of different types of offensive threats, you're talking about McCaller potentially being the fourth or fifth best offensive player within certain rotations. And you're talking about a guy who's going to make super hard cuts to the basket. Again, we're talking maybe Houston Rockets. They got to a, a sweet passing big man and now they got a sweet passing big jumbo creator you know what i mean like there's multiple guys who can get him the ball and he can get them the ball at the same time and he's going to crash the boards and he's in the set screens so even on young teams he makes sense and then you start thinking about what about what about teams where the rich get richer right like where the denver nuggets or the boston celtics or the oklahoma city thunder or the orlando magic like now you're talking about teams or Let's talk maybe Phoenix Suns or Milwaukee Bucks who are short on rotation players and have these superstars around them. Now you're shoring up rotations where you need maybe a couple more bench players. You had a guy like Kevin McCuller who's poised and has played off of other pros. You trust him to make smart plays. He's just, to me, he's like, he's like almost team proof in a way to where he makes sense on almost every NBA team. I'm having a hard time thinking of one where he doesn't make sense to where he's not a lasting ro- rotation player. I'm really glad that you brought up the point of Kevin McCuller having played with stars in the past because it's something that gets overlooked pretty often, I think, in sort of talking about 
the draft and talking about player development where pretty much every single player in the NBA was the star on their high school team. And most of them were the star on their college team. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, a lot of guys will get to the NBA and it'll be okay. You know, the college team that you were on really needed you to score 25 points a game on average efficiency. Now you're adjusting to a role where you're playing 10 minutes a game. You're coming off the bench and you're being expected to park in the corner and put up a three when the ball occasionally swings to you, but otherwise just, you know, mostly, mostly not get in the way. Right. And for a lot of players, that's a massive transition, right? They go from being the guy on whatever their previous team was to, you know, again, some guys learn this lesson in college. Some guys learn this lesson in the NBA and some guys just don't learn it. And, you know, it leads to a Jimmer for that kind of situation where, okay, you know, he's scoring 30 points a game in China because he found the league where he's going to get enough shots to score 30 points a game. And if he doesn't, he's not a valuable player, right? You know, with McCullough, it's the yeah. kind of thing where you don't need to worry about that transition at the NBA because he already made that transition, you know, in college, right? He made that transition, you know, playing alongside Jalen Wilson. He made that, you know, transition playing alongside Grady Dick. He is, you know, continuing to play off of other great players at Kansas this year. It's the kind of thing where, you don't need to worry. Ego is the wrong word for it, but you don't really need to worry about Kevin McCullough adjusting to not always having the ball because he's been there before and he's got a lot more of the ball this year and he's doing great things with it. You know, as we talked about, he's been much more effective as a playmaker than he has been in the past. But it's the kind of thing where if his role gets downsized, he will know what to do, right? It's just as simple as like, if his role gets downsized, he won't be sitting there in the corner thinking, what the hell, what am I supposed to do, right? I'm just, I'm sitting here, right? He's someone who has been forced to make that adjustment before in a way that, you know, many players struggle to make that adjustment when they make it to the NBA. You know, some do become valuable long-term role players. Some don't have to, right? Like LeBron James was never going to have to take a backseat and be a 10-minute game role player, right? But when you're talking about outside of the very, very top of the draft, you're not going to be that star player and you're certainly not going to be that star player year one unless, you know, everybody completely screws up in the draft evaluation of you, which doesn't really happen. Like even, even the guys like Jimmy Butler, who, you know, became a superstar after being the 30th overall pick in the draft, right? He wasn't an all-star year one. He was barely playing at all year one. Yeah. I mean, the, the point that you mentioned that McCullough's not going to get his feelings hurt if he's not the, the star player, you don't have to worry about is this guy going to give it his all if we're not, if, if he's playing eight minutes a game, if he's playing, you know, four or five minutes a game in year one, you're not, he's, you're not going to hurt his feelings, right? Because he's used to playing off of other talented players, right? If you give him a big role, right? To, we, we talk about this all the time to where you, you, you talked about it earlier. The reason that some of the best role players are, are the best role players is because they were the stars within their college is because that they know what stars want from supporting players because they themselves were the star and they knew what they wanted, right? So when you can play the other side of that, that's what makes you a great supporting player is because you know what the, what the star is looking for from you, right? And I, I think about a guy like Chris Murray, who his first couple of years, you know, at Iowa, he was playing with a, a really big star in uh, Luca Garza. And was a three and D specialist, you know, in the year that Luca Garza was like player of the year and ended up uh, getting looks in the NBA because he had 
a really talented guy playing in a supporting role next to him, feeding him, right? And then he saw in the year that he got drafted that, okay, because you were trusted with a little, now we can trust you with even more. And he rewarded them for that trust because he knew eventually it was going to be his turn. And then he got to be the star and he got to see the other side of it. And that is what has made him so successful in Sacramento is because no matter how many possessions or plays that you have ran for Chris, you know that he's going to get his best because we've seen it already. He's demonstrated that before. But now with an increased role and increased usage, we can trust him with that because we've seen it before. We've seen him at Iowa be trusted with more because he was trusted with a little. The same thing could happen with Kevin McCuller because we've seen it already. We've seen it at Texas A&M. And we're seeing it at Kansas. So now an NBA team has two universities where they can see continued upward trajectory and his growth and development role usage and efficiency. And that checks a lot of boxes when you're looking, like I said, outside the lottery and you're trying to shore up your rotations as a really competitive team or even an up and coming team, filling your locker room with grownups and consummate professionals. That's Kevin McCullough. It's funny because you said Chris when you meant Keegan, and yet everything Sorry. you said, Sorry. and yet, no, 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 but yet every single thing you said is completely applicable to Chris, too, who exactly. spent his first year barely playing and spent his second year being a complimentary role player while his twin brother Keegan took the reins. And then, sure enough, last year, Chris took the reins for that Iowa squad and wasn't quite as effective as Keegan was, but, you know, proved himself, was very effective with the ball in his hands, and ended up being a first-round pick for the Portland Trailblazers and, you know, has seen some time for Portland. Granted, a lot of that being Portland struggling with injury early on. But, you know, he's someone yeah. who, again, earned himself a first-round pick after being the backup guy, you know, literally being the sort of, you know, lower-drafted of his twin brother, right? Like being slightly yes, lower-drafted than his huge. twin brother. But, you know, the idea being... It's something where, yeah, they actually had, you know, two straight years of that with Keegan taking over from Luca and then Chris taking over from Keegan. Yeah, and again, my apologies. Like the, the twin thing definitely played a played a played a trick on on my head. I I do that ten times. I probably like if I get that same opportunity ten times, I'm gonna nine times say Chris again against Keegan. I do it with my own kids, so it's a dad brain at its finest right there. But yeah, like you said, spoke to both brothers, right? Yeah, I would say probably even more so, like you just mentioned, to to Chris Actual, right? Not the Chris <laughs> that I was describing earlier being Keegan, but Chris Actual because he's like the third instated version of that where Keegan was, I would say, second within that, that three-player lineage there. So before we wrap up, let's just touch on the very end of the article where you went sicko mode through a few sort of deep-cut prospects. And... So I just sort of wanted to let you take the reins here because these are your guys. So why don't we sort of start with Sam Alexis, who's the first player you have here, and then uh, work our way through these uh, sicker mode deep cuts. Yeah, and I'm going to be talking about a couple of these guys on Monday's show where I'm going to have Corey Talbo come on as my special co-host because Maxwell is going to be out doing family things as you know normal people often do around this time of year. So... um I'll touch on Elijah Saunders a little bit and Otega Owe a little bit. But yeah, going back to Sam Alexis, this is a guy who I saw Metcalf actually bring up a little bit in the group chat. And when I'm running my draft model, which is just my fancy way of making myself feel smart way of saying that I just look at what players have done in the NBA that have succeeded 
when they had been drafted, look at what they had done in college and then try to replicate that through uh, several Mark Torvik searches. And uh, Sam Alexis pops on a lot of them. You know, he's averaging at the time of this article 15 points, 12 rebounds, three blocks, and almost two assists per game, shooting 72% from the floor, 42% from deep, only 54% from free throw. Everybody's got to have their weak spot, right? Um, but he is listed at six foot nine. He's like sub 200. He just moves like an NBA forward. Um, he's a sophomore. I don't imagine him coming out this year, but this is a guy, Nick, that I would advise people just to kind of keep an eye out for because if, if he continues to do what he's doing this year at Chattanooga, like he might be playing for your favorite team next year, right? And could be like one of these rapid risers uh, for the following season. Um, I touched on Elijah Saunders. I've actually mentioned him a couple times to some people. Uh, Nick, if you ever get time to watch him, he plays for San Diego State. He gives me like a lot of PJ Washington um, vibes in particular. But he is a fun guy, averaging 9.2 points, five rebounds, a steal, a block, and an assist. He gives you, like I said, PJ Washington, Grant Williams vibes. Uh, he's a 91% free throw shooter. So there's your indication of touch that I know that you're going to like. Just a fun watch. Um, JT Toppin is a freshman big man out of New Mexico. He's a little bit of an undersized big man, I would say. Probably around like 6'8", six, 6'9". Six, but super bouncy, pogo stick guy. Um, 14 points, 8 rebounds, almost 2 blocks of 1 steal. He is just a high-energy, hyperactive defender. Um, gives you a little bit of, uh, of reminders about uh, Mr. Toppin playing for the New York Knicks as well. Um, I could not find whether or not they were related. Um, I did Google that because they, they do play a little bit. And I'm sorry, Toppin plays for the Pacers now. used to play for the Pacers. He's, I did it again. That, <laughs> that right? and then, uh, Yeah, I mean, who cares, right? It's just the Knicks. Sorry. Yeah, it's not a Kings player. Who cares? Yeah. All right. Um, big deep cut, deep cut here. But uh, DeShane Montgomery is a guard, uh, freshman guard playing out of Mount St. Mary's. Uh, he was like a zero-star recruit, but he is doing some really cool things in 22 minutes per game. He's averaging 11 points, four boards, two steals, about a block, and a half an assist. His steals percentage is 4.7, and his block percentage is at four. Like That's insane stuff. And at one thing, one article that I found about him and doing research, because this is just not a guy that normal people would make. I don't think are going to know who he is, right? Like, like, even like sickos don't even know about this guy, but... He was in a, a a basketball tournament, the 2022 Grassroots Basketball Finale, where he played with some other pros in there. But uh, Brianna Patton, who covered him for this article, was says that my first game watching him against the 3D Empire, he opened the game up with two powerful back-to-back dunks that left the gym buzzing. As you can imagine, with most athletic wings, he shines in transition. Defensively, he causes a ton of turnovers with his disruptive play on that end. He's doing that this year at Mount St. Mary's. I don't imagine he's going to be playing there next year. No disrespect to Mount St. Mary's, but he's an incredibly talented guard who's going to probably move up. And then the last one is uh, Otega Owe. He's probably one that uh, people at No Ceilings saw me and uh, Rucker freaking out about with that major putback jam that he had the other day to, to win the game. But he is a very athletic freak of nature, super crafty defensive guy, 6.3% stills percentage. Uh, at two and a half steals per game and has a block percentage of 1.6. He plays in a very deep guard rotation with uh, the um, the Sooners, and he does a lot of the dirty work for that team. Uh, highly recommended 
watch, but I'm going to be talking a little bit more about him on Sunday with uh, Corey. So those are that's that's my sicko mode rant right there. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, there are a lot of guys here who you know certainly as you mentioned with uh, Saunders that 91 free throw percentage you know intrigues me the steal steal and a half and a block per game also intrigued me i mean this is the kind of thing where you know again i've talked about quite frequently how steals rates tend to translate very directly from college to the nba and it's the kind of thing where getting too enamored with steals rates is something that i struggle with because you know sometimes i tend to overlook that they get a lot of those steals by gambling but it's the kind of thing where Look, if you're creating chaos, generating turnovers, you know, generating highlight plays as a defender, it's the kind of thing that can really help cover up a lot of other things. And there's a this is a fascinating list of guys. I mean, with Sam Alexis, the you know block percentage is incredibly intriguing. The two assists per game to go along with that. I mean, that's the kind of thing where if you can get a big man who can you know ha- be a part of the offense can have the offense run through them rather than just being like a rim runner type who's a rim protector on the other end that's an immensely valuable player and you know getting that kind of player with you know the shooting splits the 42 is great the 54 is concerning right but it's the kind yeah. of thing where man if you have that kind of skill set and it works out to the best way it possibly could that's a very easy sort of NBA translation to think through of, wow, okay, so this guy's an awesome shot blocker who can hit shots and also isn't a zero when, you know, the ball hits their hands and they're not shooting. There are a lot of teams that can use players like that. And crashes the glass, too. I mean, one thing yeah. that Maxwell and I talk about, I think every episode ever, is how <laughs> um, you, you mentioned how stills percentage is a good indication for pros. Like, Almost every successful NBA player was a good rebounder. Like even Trey Young. Like if you go and look at the rebounding numbers that he put up, put up the year he got drafted, I think people would be surprised. So like rebounding is a skill that is often under discussed, but I think it's a usually it's a pretty good indication of a player who's a pro. And Sam Alexis at six foot nine, sub two hundred pounds, like <laughs> grabbing twelve rebounds a game at Chattanooga, like that is that that's insane while shooting well from deep like you mentioned while playing really good defense and and being able to move the ball there's there's a lot to be intrigued with i wouldn't be surprised if people um on twitter start putting his name up there with guys like taylor Hendricks or jonathan isaac players like that all right anything else you want to cover on this one before we wrap this episode up no no man i just want to thank you so much again as always for for having me on i appreciate any time that you want to have me on to talk about the players that i'm uh fallen in love with and uh you know i got got more pieces in the works i think my next one for the following week is going to be on harrison ingram who i think people are going to start changing their tunes on like really really quickly um there's other players like that i i think as we're recording this rucker is blowing up the group chat on uh, matthew cleveland right now so (laughs) i'm excited to jump in and see what that discussion is about but uh yeah man just uh i'm excited um as always to be on the show and thanks for thinking of me and having Absolutely. Always, always glad to have you on the show. And, you know, we, we can get really deep into the weeds. And certainly with, you know, Harrison Ingram next week, he's someone who I've also written about for Editor's Notes before. Someone who it was always just so close to figuring it out. So close, so close. And if he really is starting to figure it out now, I think Ooh. it will be very easy for him to start rising up my board sooner rather than later. Yeah, he, I was, 
I was, it's funny because uh, Maxwell and I were texting earlier, and I was just like, I don't know what he does bad this year. Like the the move from Stanford to UNC it looks like it has revitalized him in the best way. Like he's shooting off of motion, off of bounce. The vision has kind of always been there. The rebounding is there. He's strong as all get out. He's huge on the court. You trust him around the rim, and now that he's like getting brave with pretty crazy shots from deep and hitting them with regularity. I don't know what he does wrong now that he's more perimeter, like gifted around on the perimeter this year. He's might be a name to keep an eye on for his stock moving forward. Alright, well he is Stephen Gillespie. You can find him on Twitter at Stephen G Hoops and you can of course find his written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com Be sure to check out his show with Corey on Monday, covering a couple of the guys that we hit on at the end of this podcast. And, of course, be on the lookout for his article on Harrison Ingram coming out next Tuesday. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find my written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com as well. If you've been enjoying the show, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback regarding the deep dive specific portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.